You are listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online, and my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. Thanks for joining me. The interview subject I've got coming up for you. Wow, the big ones keep on coming through because this fella's in Paul Bearer, and they've got a new album out called Forgotten Days. The bassist is who you'll be hearing from, Joseph D. Rowland. I truly enjoyed this discussion, I must say. It's one of my favourite things to connect with the a musician who has an international audience, and it's fair to say Paul Bearer, they're certainly making a mark at this point in time. We talk about the album, of course, but regular listeners, you know me. We talk about a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Some pretty deep and meaningful subjects, I must say. This is one of my favourite interviews of the year thus far. I don't say shit like that unless I mean it, and I mean it. So here he is, Joseph D. Rowland from Paul Bearer. Can yep. you hear me? Yeah, mate. What what is going on behind you there? That is uh, not what I expected to see. So share with me what's happening. <laughs> uh, this is a, a modular synthesizer in the background. Nice. It was that on the album. Uh, there is some modular synth on the album, but not not this particular setup. So, so I'm a this musician. This is just my home my home setup. <laughs> so. Look, forgive my ignorance, but does that use tubes or is that all solid state? Uh, in this case, it doesn't really, uh, that doesn't apply. It's a different, a totally different different sort of technology, I guess. But I mean, there are, uh, there are some, like, these are all like modules in here. There are some that use a tube in the like signal path, but I, I don't have any, so. Mate, that's very impressive. I love the look of it. You know, I, I love, I love, I love the hat too. By the way, you know, ten out of ten oh, for the hat. Uh, <laughs> you know, I had a, sp- I had a chat to Trevor about it eighteen months ago. So I just love that band so much. You know. And, oh uh, man, yeah, yeah. We toured with them a few years ago, and they were, uh, they were definitely a lot of fun. That would have been a killer tour to see you both together. It just would have been a, a wall of sound. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was a trip for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and you got is that a keyboard up there and the just behind next to the synth? Oh, it, back here. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a drum machine. Drum machine. Okay, I actually feel like if if you'll let me disconnect this for a second, uh, sure. I can show you. There's quite a bit more <laughs> in here. That's unreal. Like, this is like my my home studio setup. It's like basically like all synth stuff and then a few few guitar things but... yeah, that's killer so do you write do you must write a lot of stuff on on keys or on synth uh yeah i mean uh in addition to the like instances that it like works its way into paul bearer i also like am a, am a tallow disco producer so nice is I that do, right i do so like other of... like Giorgio yeah, Moroda. Yeah, yeah, totally. That that style of stuff. Nice. All right. So do you get in the synth wave as well? Man, I'm one of those people who's like I'm like too much of a snob to like get into the <laughs> the like synth wave stuff, I think. I've heard some stuff that I think is pretty cool, but in general, like a lot of it like feels it's the same sort of feeling for me as like when like horror or sci-fi movies come out now that are supposed to like seem like a B movie. Sure. But it's too, it's too self-aware to actually be 
like genuinely bad but good in the same way that like a lot of like 70s and 80s movies were where like they just had no conception of the fact that they were making a terrible movie but it's it's still like this like kind of like joyously innocent thing where like it's a it's a train wreck of a movie but you love it anyway that's the way i feel about the synthwave stuff it's like too self-aware it's like trying a little too hard to be like this retro kind of thing and it just comes off there's like something like like disingenuous about it to me but i'm also like an enormous nerd about this shit so (laughs) that's fantastic yeah i love this you're a purist i love that i mean you can hear that with what you're doing with paul bearer but you're a purist in your approach to music in general and that makes complete sense why you've got the modular synth there behind you because uh look i've loved giorgio's music for for so long myself and you're the first metal you know when i say metal musician rock metal musician what have you that's really appreciated it because i love disco and funk as well as much as i yeah. love metal i love it and it's, it's amazing it's, yeah it's it's incredible you know bands like chic and brothers johnson you're a bassist so you get this yeah. stuff i mean to be Absolutely. honest man the, I, I listen to that more than i listen to metal it's just the stuff especially you know if i'm having a scotch or something like that mate give, give me two or three of them man and brothers johnson come on in the background and uh <laughs> I'm not one of those people that's jealous or envious, man. I'm just so I just admire the way that they can play. Yeah. Oh, I mean, they like Chic had a like better studio band than like any metal band ever, <laughs> probably. The and it like definitely like a lot more inventive. Uh, well, Nile Rogers. I'm not a, not a huge like. Yeah. Not. I mean. I actually had an opportunity to see Niall Rogers do a keynote a few years ago where he talked about uh, putting together that band and like how, I mean, they, they essentially like revolutionized the music industry. So. I, I absolutely agree. Thank you for saying that. Thank you so much for saying that because I've tried to connect with, I've, I've done almost, it's over 600 interviews now and the few times that I've brought it up, and it's not because people are ignorant, they just don't know. If you don't know, you don't know. You know, it's like yeah. asking somebody if they've tried some of the fabulous dishes from Tuscany and they say, well, no, I haven't. It's just that they don't know the, the riches that await, if you like. And for me, uh, Niall Rogers and Bernard, Bernard Edwards being a bassist, you know, he's pretty much the Alpha and the Omega alongside of Larry Graham. Um, mm-hmm. But Madonna owes her career to Niall Rogers and, and Bernard. Absolutely. And... Because of Madonna's supreme influence, just about all this music that came after her is influenced by her. So if it wasn't for Niall and Bernard, there'd be no Madonna. Therefore, music would sound different. And that's always been my point. Yeah. Like, you, you still have music, but it wouldn't sound the way it does now. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it would. that's sort of like this like insane, like almost like butterfly effect sort of thing where like, Absolutely. If, they hadn't, if they hadn't done what they did, like... If you think about all the like pop music that's come since, I mean, obviously like Lady Gaga was like the newest iteration of Madonna almost, Absolutely. where it was like this like artiste pop star, somebody who was like aspiring to do something like bigger than just be like a commercial success. But there was this whole other like it, just thinking about like all of the things that never would have been the same. Like it's absolutely yeah, like this I mean... indelible footprint on the. I was listening to um, uh, just randomly, random thing I did this morning. Do you remember that Power Station, the band that Niall and Bernard helped out a lot, you know, with Robert Palmer and the guys from Duran Duran and Tony Thompson from Chic was in it as well? I 
did I'm you not check as that familiar out? with that. I think I've, I think I know like one song from them, but I Bang a I, Gong. I'm not you know Bang a Gong. Yeah. Yeah, but, yeah. I definitely know that. Well, I watched the their appearance on Miami Vice on YouTube this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Although Robert Palmer wasn't singing, it was some other interloper whose name I can't remember. I shouldn't say interloper, I don't know. Robert obviously was not in the band at that point, but it was just after they'd released... I mean, Miami Vice has peaked 1985, 1986, which is, I think, when that album came out. I, I loved that album as a kid, and still to this day as an adult, the two albums that they that they bought out. And uh, there's that other famous video. <laughs> it's hilarious because... Uh, Bernard showing, I can't remember the name of the Duran Duran bass player who's the bassist in Power Station, but showing him how to do some slapping and some funk stuff. And then, I, with all due respect to Duran Duran bassist, bass player, he can't do it. So he yes. does this yeah. chucking sort of a thing with this pick. <laughs> <laughs> it was like, dude, why didn't why didn't Bernard just play on the album? Because it just would have, it was, I mean, with Tony Thompson in there, those two were like yeah. a hand in a glove. Yeah. I'll have to check that out. I I feel like I'm missing out. It's good stuff. I'll tell you why. It's kind of like the hard rock version of Chic. That's the best way I can describe mm. it. So it's still got that titanic groove. They've not lost that. You, you, you can't lose that if you've got Tony and Bernard and Niall looking after things. But then you can hear the genesis of the way at one of our favourite bands in Australia, In Excess, because, of course, Niall had a lot to do with them. You know, they were a great pub rock band in Australia. They They... Did a lot of pub stuff, a bit like Midnight Oil and Cold Chisel and all this stuff. But then they went to New York, yeah. I think it was, and they met Niall. And Niall just gave them this funk. And, of course, they became, you know, this band that headlined Wembley and all sorts of stadiums all over the world. So, yeah, man, just to, just to round out the point, man, it's uh, Niall Rogers all the way and Bernard Edwards all the way for me, man. I, I just, I, I talk about a lot of this stuff with people, but I, I feel like people's eyes glaze over. But I think there's a lack of awareness of their history and how, how important they have been to to music and uh especially it's even recent too man i mean they helped daft punk reinvent themselves yeah no i was i was actually about to say i mean like their daft punk's entire sound and like influence on house music was clearly just like them essentially like remixing stuff to sound like chic (laughs) pretty much or like that style so all the french house stuff uh, Dude, you yeah, get it. They Jesus. Did a re- yeah. The last record that they did was just essentially like, was it just produced by Nile Rodgers? Oh, I, I think it and was it had, the guy. It had like, I think Bangladesh and the other fella did it. But I mean, to your exact point, I mean, you know, you can hear Nile's influence and foot fingerprint yeah. all over it. Like, lose yourself to dance with Pharrell singing on it. Man, how many times have I had a few too many beverages and just played that back to back, just constantly, just with the. I've got my bass out, I've got a five string bass, just. Nate, and you know who played bass of that? Nathan East, one of the greatest bass mm. players of all time. You know, Nathan East, who did Footloose. And. Yeah. I, I play in covers, so I, I have to play a lot of this stuff. And I've tried to play Footloose note for note, but I, I can't. I'm not, I don't think I lack too much in a, in a, in a technical proficient sense, but. To sit down and get every little nuance of that right, it just it's just too much, to be honest with you. Plus, there's the way that he does things. You know, you yeah. get your fingers this way and this way. When you're on stage and you're sweating, and you get it, you're a musician, you perform many sweaty gigs. It's a, your fingers... it's a like, classic, yeah, classic instance of the, like, the, the tone is in the fingers thing, where like you can... Right hand like, as well. Yep. It really is like all up to the, the musician to... I mean, and then in, in that sort of case where it's just like, 
even if you can play every single note right, it's still never going to be exactly the same. The timing is going to be because, slightly like, out if it can be hard, like a quarter note behind where he hits it. So you, you, you never yeah. quite get it. You can sort of capture the energy, I think, but you'll never get it exactly right. But Nathan East yeah. Space flying on Lose Yourself to Dance, man, I've, I've listened to that so many times and I've had the headphones on and I've just gone, okay. And he's doing things that I still don't understand. Like I can hear what he's doing, but I've tried to recreate it and it's definitely not a synth bass. It's definitely him playing. But I don't. It, it's like I don't know the name of Rihanna's bass player. Uh, tremendous bass player. There's a couple of videos like this. His Pepsi Smash video on YouTube. Just watching him do his stuff, and it's just this impeccable. He's so deep in the pocket that if you remove the bass from her playing live, it doesn't sound like Rihanna yeah. anymore. That's how important the bass well, is. There's one thing too that I I know like I don't know if you're a fan of like Leland Squar oh, at all. Yeah. Big time. Yeah. Uh, that I know that like a lot of and this, I've, I heard this from like him giving this like lengthy description about like how a lot of stuff was done back then, but they would like essentially set up a, an envelope follower on a modular synth like this that would trigger a baseline that like matched like on a, on a, like on a synth that matched oh. the playing exactly. So it like would, add this additional like one or two octave foundation even lower than what's being played on the the string instrument it's itself interesting and then they would mix that like way down low in the mix but it just provided this like extra like bottom end on there i didn't so, know that so there you go so yeah. have, have you tried anything like that with what you're doing uh i mean i i've, I've done my own experiments uh myself like here in my my home studio but i've never really tried to like with paul bear the few times that i've like been interested in maybe trying to incorporate something like that it just wasn't that practical sure. especially not on in a like in a live setting i would end up having to have like a separate line go into the board and like maybe even like an extra like cab on stage and at that yeah. point like there's like as we're not the kind of band who can just <laughs> indulge like whatever we want in terms of, you know, like there has to be some sort of like economy happening of like, all right, my touring pedal board needs to be this big. Cause we have to take like 10 flights on this tour. And like, sure. I can't, I can't afford to necessarily like bring two pedal boards on the, on the flight. If I wanted to break it up or something like that, would it be an extra three hundred dollars for the flight or something so we you know like a lot of times even though we might have ideas of doing stuff that you know the the legendary players that we idolize like we're able to do because they were playing in arenas <laughs> like we have to sort of like figure out how to accomplish something maybe if we if we do end up trying to do something that's akin to it it's like our own way of doing it that's somehow like you know, I guess like cobbling it together into something that that works. <laughs> I don't know. So, so, but you are a very competent musician, clearly, and you you get the history of of music in general. What we're talking about, you've you've understood everything that I've spoken about, and you've certainly got your own opinions on things as well. So, uh, uh, do you see the band potentially morphing into like a John Paul Jones setup? You know, with Cashmere, where you're doing the keyboards and you take the band in that direction. We've done that already. So 
some on tour. Like we've had situations where we have had keys on stage and some some sections of songs will be like there will be no bass and there will be keys or sometimes like Brett who sings and plays guitar and Paul Bearer sure. like plays keys. Um, once again, it's just kind of a situation of like thus far we've never had a situation where uh, we've had like an extra like touring member or something. We've been talking about maybe having someone that like plays live with us whenever that's a thing again. Yeah. Who's just like a, a like a like a session member essentially. Uh, who would be able to kind of cover the keys or like if, if for instance, like I wanted to switch to playing keys, like that person could play bass while I'm on keys or, you know, just whatever they would be able to kind of like fill yeah. a role that like in the studio we're able to pull off like relatively easily because we do have the, the, like the knowledge base and like at least like enough of the skill to be able to do it. But uh, at least, I think, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, no, I've definitely know, got just, the skills. Yeah. The band's definitely very like skillful. We, you can hear that. Yeah. We, uh, yeah, we, I think that one thing that a lot of people forget about in the, in the like touring world of bands is there's just, there's just not like unlimited money to like throw at, like whatever, you know, like flights of fancy we, as much as like, we would like the show to be like the most, like breathtaking and just like a, a fully like jaw dropping experience on like every front. But, you know, we have to like figure out like what, what we can do, make sure everybody still like has a home to come home, home yeah. to when the tour's over, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, it's not like it was back in the day where, you know, like uh, a relatively like left field, like heavy, heavy band is, you know, able to just like do whatever we want. So we, yeah, we, we all, I think that we don't let it color the like creative process too much. We also like try not to like overextend ourselves either. Like when we're writing and recording music, we like, we don't want to make something that's impossible for us to do in the live setting. Yeah. So, hey. so far everything that we've done, we've kind of like been like, all right, well, here's our like, Here's our limit of like how much we can do on this, which is why like I think to some degree like why we've never like fully indulged the like the, the synth stuff to the max in any of the Paul Bear songs, just because it would be a completely different paradigm to try to introduce that in a in a like a genuine way live. Yeah. Have, have you thought about doing, I don't know whether you saw, but uh, Lamb of God did this live thing a couple of, was it a week or two ago? And uh, I think, you know, they're a riff-heavy band, as you guys are too, but I think they're pretty meat and potatoes from the perspective mm -hmm. that if you put keyboards or anything else in there, it would sound naff, to be honest with you. But they did a, I think Suicide Silence did the same thing where they, you know, this COVID period, you can't perform live. So you've got to perform live somehow, and I guess it's over Zoom or uh, private link or what have you, you know. Have you guys thought of realizing your ultimate vision sound-wise and doing it that way? We've done some some stuff remotely so far. Uh, we've actually been going back and redoing some of our back catalog as like fully sent nice. versions of the songs. Uh, but in terms of like a live stream sort of thing, like Lamb of God or Suicide Silence or whatever, we 
we've been discussing doing that, but the logistics of it are pretty difficult because I live like half the country away from everybody else. Like I'm, my home base is in New York city. Oh shit. Everybody else is in, uh, everybody else is in Arkansas Mm. and just trying to make sure that if we do get together, that it can be done like safely and without like, there being some like really extended like quarantine period or whatever, you know, and obviously that's also going to be the same, not just for me, but for like whoever we get to do the sound engineering or like camera crew or whatever. It's like, we just, because it's already going to be, it's going to end up having to be like people coming mm. from elsewhere to little rock. I, I assume, or maybe the other guys coming from little rock to, another location it's just a lot to like put together to figure out how to do it where like no one's health and well-being is being compromised compromised in some way so yeah yeah yeah. we want to do it like really badly but it's just it it hasn't been in the cards for us yet we're still trying to kind of figure out the best opportunity for it can you even leave new york state like i know here in victoria People can't even they can't get into New South Wales or up here where I'm in Queensland. So, can you can you get to Arkansas if you, if you wanted to? I could, yeah, I could get to Arkansas. I'm still extremely hesitant to fly. Uh, I've only been out of New York City once since March, yeah, and it was in a car. And you can definitely travel by car out of New York and into New York, no problem. But it it would be a over 20 hour drive to get, get to Little Rock. And I also like don't have a driver's license. So it just, wouldn't, <laughs> I would need someone else to, yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. to get me. I don't know. It's just like, it's a, it's a whole stupid thing. So is, sometime mate, we'll figure yeah. it out. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, we, we need to figure it out because I know the WHO have come out recently and said, effectively, herd immunity is the way to go. So all these lockdowns need to end sooner rather than later. And that's, I mean, you know, they've, they've been criticised fairly or unfairly, depending on your perspective. Like I suppose it all is a political thing these days. You know, you tend, people tend to take perspectives along political lines, but they've been accused of being funded by China and the like. But it's only in the last few days that they've come out and said, hang on a sec, you've, we've now got to open up borders and people have got to start intermingling because I don't think we've got an absurd situation here in Victoria where they, they keep on cycling through these outbreaks and then they just go into these heavy lockdowns again and, and people are getting fined for exercising, literally. Wow. You know, I think they're yeah, the toughest lockdowns a, in, in, the, in the world, actually, in Victoria or thereabouts, that's, you know. That's crazy. Yeah, I've heard about there being some pretty intense lockdowns because uh, I, have, I have some friends who are in in Sydney and in Melbourne and they've mentioned that it's been Yeah, Melbourne, sorry. It's been more Victoria, Melbourne, more, yeah. More stringent than anything here. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I just for me I am I have no background in science whatsoever, but I have been very disappointed that at least in the US that there has been such a strong pushback against wearing masks, which is like to me like if it's being suggested by scientists that you should wear a mask, like why the fuck wouldn't you wear a mask? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I, I just don't understand like why there's been this whole, there's there it's, it has become a political stance. Yeah, it's partisan. Yeah. Essentially 
essentially be displaying full disrespect for everybody else. So I'm just kind of like, and it is, I would say it's like caused quite a bit of bitterness for me because I'm like, I can't go back to doing the one thing that I feel like I've been like put here on this planet to do <laughs> because these like fucking douchebags are like basically like just being like, fuck everybody. I'm just going to like, for, for freedom, I'm going to, mm. <laughs> I'm going to like, I don't know. I, it, it pisses me off to no extent pretty much because I just, I just want to get back to being able to play music and, yeah, you know, right now I, as, as awesome as it's been to have the time at home for so long, I, I've, I've started to realize, I think that part of my like creative process at least has like grown to include the like departure and return to my creative space. It's like what helps like kind of like foster the creative process. I think being able to like leave and not be able to create and then come back and then oh, it all mate. comes don't like worry. pouring out. So yeah, we, we don't have yeah. lockdowns here in Queensland, but uh, I mean, I can't really do anything. I'm, I'm a writer and journo. So uh, we, we've been working from home and I'm writing a book at the yeah. moment, but we can't really uh, travel or, or we can travel uh, within the state. No problem. But just going over the border just to, do something as basic as get a, getting a fucking cup of coffee at Nimbin, which I like doing, you know, just, you know, 150 yeah. kilometers down the road. It's just a pop skip and a jump away. But I, I, wow. I might be subject to two weeks worth of quarantine, which I can't. I've got kids, man. I've got to take kids to school yeah. and I, I just can't af yeah, afford but... to risk it is what I'm saying. And, and it's, that, it, yeah. it's that situation where we just sort of feel we're, even if you aren't locked up, you feel like as though you've got these restrictions. And I understand what, what, what the reasoning is behind it, but... Um, I understand exactly what you're saying, sorry, to your point there about the creative process, you know, that, because it was part of the way that we do things is by meeting and especially, I'm a musician too, as I've explained, and um, watching bands, man, just having a bevy and watching bands, yeah. just, just fuck, man, not, we haven't played now in almost 12 months, my band, yeah. last time we played was in January you know, January 3rd or something like that. I don't know when it was, man. And it's just, uh, this is the longest in my life, probably the same for you, since I became a musician back in 1992, that I haven't played live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I haven't played a live show since September of last year, which is definitely the longest. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's close to two decades. So, it's... It's, I don't know. <laughs> it's it's, just it's weird. definitely like wearing wearing my like sanity down. I think. Mm. Mate, let, let's talk about this album then, because uh, look, I am a fan of you guys, and I had a, I had a chat to Brett uh, whenever the the last album um, mm -hmm. was released, so 2016 or 17, I think it was, and um, I was very impressed with that album, I must say. But I've only had this one for a week or so ever since Nuclear Blast put it in the portal and were able to download it and the like. So I haven't lived with it long enough but my impression is that it may be a stronger out forgotten days may be a stronger album than heartless okay now the, the reason i do is because i'm a huge dio era sabbath fan and i don't know whether you've been given this feedback before but i think you guys are the natural successor without trying 
you are the natural to success at a mob rules and the other album whose name escapes me at the moment even though i've listened to it a million times and i can't he- remember right heaven now. and hell Heaven and Hell, yeah. Mob Rules is is probably just slightly more my favourite than the other one. That's why I can remember it, sorry. But you know where I'm headed to, man. I think that um, the reason I say that is because you've managed to blend even more melody without sacrificing any of the heaviness. So do you feel the same way about the band's progression? I mean, for us, like, it's always our, like, one of our, like, consummate pursuits to continue evolving from what we've done before. Um, the last record I think for us was kind of like first and foremost, like a challenge to ourselves to like take everything that we had done up to that point and really, really push the most progressive edges of it Mm -hmm. into like a, a place that was almost like beyond our grasp. Uh, like we had to like get good enough to play that record almost sure. like we were able to write it but the then there had to be this whole like catch up period where we would like be able to re- like legitimately like pull it off in a live setting it was like this whole other like hurdle that we had to to get over and once we did that we we do like the next step was that we wanted to make something a little like a little leaner musically, like less like just absolute like balls to the wall, like constant like progression through songs. Cause like a lot of the heartless stuff, like there's hardly anything that repeats ever. So we wanted yeah. to like scale that back a little bit, a little less ornamental and focus just on the melody and the muscle kind of. It's interesting you say that because one of the one of the biggest oh it's not even a, it's a left turn it's not a U turn but it's when Metallica went from uh, Injustice to Black and Black's an album that I still think is shit to be honest with you it's my it's just my opinion it's as a musician and as a fan I can't do it no I couldn't really do it back in the day God knows I've played uh, uh, Enter Sandman as much as I've played any other song in my life because playing <laughs> covers everybody wants to hear yeah. that as the second or second last or second last song of the night that and smells like teen spirit which i would pay money to never have to play or listen to ever again either of those cuts but you guys didn't lose your identity in the process though okay and and i think a lot of bands run that risk i think i mean who's to say like who who was like pushing the like creative process behind metallica and nirvana in those periods like when they they went into like a more commercial space for us. I mean, in spite of there being like shorter songs and like more hooks on this record, it wasn't like anybody was telling us that that was something that we needed to do. There wasn't like the, like a corporate machine behind the creative process on this. We just like, we kind of already did our like injustice for all, I think when that was heartless. And so the, this is not something that was like a discussion really but we wanted to make a record that like not the Metallica comparison really but since you brought that up uh, but when we were working on the record we had a like pretty vast amount of material that we had been working on and then we like were like alright let's like figure out from this huge batch of stuff like what 
what like works the best together and like how do we want to compartmentalize this like what what is our what is like album four going to be which is like at the time before forgotten days was the title or anything like that we were just like kind of like narrowing down which was like new territory for us because like in the past we've never like overwritten for a record sure it's always just been like we topped out at the songs that were on <laughs> on the album and there was never like anything else so this time we actually had the i guess the the benefit of that of being able to be like all right we've written all of these songs like let's let's figure out what works best and this to capture like the mood we want like what we want to express in a live setting and in the record setting and like <clears throat> then develop that further into like an even more refined piece, which, so this was like months before we went into the studio. Yeah. So we had the discussion of like, all right, we want to make something that's like less, uh, less of a like shred exercise almost something that's like a little, like, like pulled back a little bit, but still like the emotion is like the strongest element there. And it's something that we feel like when we perform it, like that'll be like the strongest thing that's like put forward. It's like it, it just like thrives on that emotional, like visceral component. So that's that's where we ended up with what we what ended up being the record. We like narrowed it down to that there were eight songs that we felt like that encapsulated this record. And then we further honed in on making it work even more together in that context. And then by November last year, we went into the studio. November, I was going to ask that, so it was pre-COVID, yeah. Here's another question for you. I don't, I don't know why I've never asked this this question before, but here goes. Does, does Marcus and the team at uh, Nuclear, do they put any pressure or do, do they sort of lay out any obligation for you to, to continue producing a sound in a certain vein, or do you just sort of hand in the album and say, here it is? Nuclear Blast had literally zero input on what we did on this record. This was still, like, absolutely, like, to the millionth, like, microscopic level. Our record, along with Randall Dunn, who produced the record, he, he also had okay. some input in the studio but i mean there was never any any discussion about like or pressure or anything like there was never any communication about what this like this record should or shouldn't be it was as has always been our our like mo like we make the record that we want to make you, you gotta wonder with a label like, because it's, I, I think other artists have alluded to it too, that they just, you know, when they're done, they hand it in and nuclear Marcus or whoever it might be goes, yeah, okay, that's all right. But you got to wonder if there's ever been like a, uh, was it Metal Machine Music? Was that that bloody thing that, um, what's his name, Lou Reed did 40 years ago, 50 years ago or so now? Uh, if they handed in something like that, what they might say, you know, I know you guys aren't <laughs> silly and you wouldn't do that, but you got to think somebody somewhere is going to have thought, you know what, I'm going to fuck shit up. Here you go. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's probably happened. I mean, uh, we definitely weren't like aiming to to make a record that we thought like 
everyone would hate. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, we were we were still trying. I mean, like, of course, we wanted to make a record that that we that we liked and that hopefully other people would like. So, yeah, yeah. So, why Randall? What was the the attraction there? So we uh, over the course of time since Heartless came out, we had done a few singles. Atlantis, it, yeah, I remember. Yeah. Atlantis, uh, Dropout, and then we also did a cover of Run Like Hell by Pink, Pink Floyd. Floyd. Nice. Uh, and Randall mixed all of those. He didn't record them. He wasn't like in the studio with us when when those were being tracked. But we like tracked them and then sent the sessions to him to mix over different periods in time because dropout and then the other like Atlantis and run like hell were like over two different years. But so we had done that. And then we also, uh, um, and during that time, in addition to like his like professional input on that front, we just discussed with him kind of about like our philosophy as a band and like his philosophy as a producer and felt like it would be, a good fit to work together so that was kind of like where the the initial like spark came sure. from was doing those shows with randall and kind of like seeing that it, we felt like we were like potentially like a good holistic match to work together because like what he was putting forward on his creative end of things seemed a lot to line up like pretty well with like what we would be looking for if we worked with a producer mm -hmm. yeah look i hate to bring up metallica again but just the bob rock thing you know he worked with them for 25 years or whatever it was i don't know whatever the period of time was that he 15 years whatever um do you think you'd ever see yourselves working with someone you know whether it's randall or what have you you know you're fairly you you're not you're not uh, you're not old meaning that you're probably about my age you know early 40s thereabouts you could conceivably be doing this Metallica are in their late 50s these days for, for another 30 years or so. Do you, so would you be open to that as a strategy or do you, do you like the idea of working with different people and getting new ideas that way? I like the idea of working with different people. Uh, I would like to work with Randall again. But I, I know even from his perspective, like he has a, a limit of the amount of times that he'll work with an artist because he also like feels that like it can hamper the growth or the, I guess, you know, it, it fosters a like level of like, like comfortability where like a, an artist can like get to, I don't know, like they, they know what the, they know what the producer expects them to do sure. and they end up like not like pushing themselves as much as they would going into a situation where it was like more of like, like an unknown factor, I guess. So like, I know that Randall also has like a ceiling that he limits himself to in terms of like how many times he'll work with a, a particular artist. So yeah, I, that said, uh, I would definitely like to work with Randall again. I felt like his input on forgotten days definitely helped place it exactly like in the zone that we had been envisioning before going into the studio 
So what about the lyrical front then? Because I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong here, that you write the lyrics or you at least co-write the lyrics. So did you address any themes specifically? Yeah. Uh, in terms of co-writing, it's like it's either or sort of situation. Like it's like the songs that Brett writes musically, he, he writes the lyrics for and the songs that I write musically, I write the lyrics for. So on this record, uh, the lyrics that I wrote are encircling the, the events that like transpired 10 years ago as of last year, because last year was the 10th anniversary of my mom passing away. And it was also kind of the year that Paul Bearer like really took off and it, that had sort of like provided this convenient escape for me for all this time. Cause I never anticipated that I was suddenly going to be thrust into being a professional musician who like spends a good portion of my time, like kind of on the road and like, or at least on the move, even if I'm not touring, I often would be like, like flying between New York and Little Rock to rehearse or like do whatever. It was just kind of like, I was always able to like have this like forward mobility that like enabled me to never really need to take a look back sure. at how my mother's passing had been shaping me all that time in the interim. So mm -hmm. knowing like, Last year, like when we like kind of like all agreed that we were going to start working on a new record, I was like, well, knowing that I'm going to be home for this long, I mean, obviously this was like pre-COVID, so I, I've had a lot of time at home, but uh, I was like, all right, I need, I need to like sit down and make a like fuller assessment of myself and like my relationship to my mother's death and like how that that has like shaped me in, in ways beyond I beyond what I had really comprehended before because it was it was so easy for me to just keep moving forward without sure without having to from, really man. like yeah without having to really look at it I was able to just feel like well I'm too busy for this I can just kind of like brush it off or like block it out in a way that like it mm. felt like it never caught up with me but i knew that it was it was inevitable and so i just decided to to like basically do an about face and like just really try to like take it head on yeah i can relate in in a way i lost my dad 10 years ago too and uh, uh he lived in a different city but um it's a it's a it's very hard to articulate to somebody particularly at our age when you lose a parent at our age we hadn't my wife and i hadn't yet had kids and uh, my wife since lost her father too so we've just got mothers on either side of the family um but it's it goes far beyond from my own perspective reviewing your own sense of mortality it actually sort of lends itself into the quality of life that you want to lead and the legacy you want to lead particularly as i do have kids um, yeah. In so far as, okay, so my father and I, I wouldn't say we didn't get along, 
but we certainly were never close and he made no effort to understand my deep love and appreciation of music like this. You know what I mean? He was a he worked for the state government and basically turned up to work and then came home, that sort of a thing. And then he had an interest in some sport and stuff and that's that's really kind of it. But it 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 if anything, I think his mortality allowed me to consider very much the relationship that I want to have with my daughters and the kind of legacy I want to leave behind for them because he had cancer and he, he died within sort of two or th- two years, I think it was, of his first diagnosis. So it was boom, you know, just and then that's it, gone. And if they didn't have some cash, he would have been dead as soon as he got the diagnosis effectively, you know, because yeah, it was brain cancer, yeah. it was your cactus. Yeah, but it's um, it's something, in, and I think, I don't know whether it's from that, I'm not, maybe it's always been a bit of a lifelong pursuit but i lent into a lot of krishna consciousness and tried to understand oh, interesting. Our, yeah our place in the universe you know in that way mm-hmm. you know so yeah for me the the roughest part of it was i i grew up in like kind of the like i guess like unusual was raised under like sort of like unusual circumstances where like my my parents were involved in a cult and it was still like a Christian based thing, but it was like this like very fringe, like Christian cult and the way that like the, the structure of it was that like my mom was like kind of the only person that I ended up with that I really like looked to for guidance. My dad was like not, really as present in my life mm-hmm. and then I lost my mom like right on the cusp of like really like becoming an adult sure. so it was like this like very intense sense of like feeling like unmoored at that time where I was just like the one person that I like for whatever reason like my my like parents like poor choices of like being involved in like such a like questionable thing. Like I, I ended up where I like lost the one person that I had sort of looked to all through growing up as like my one sort of uh, mentor and like confidant. Like she was like just pulled away, like right at like this crux in my life where I was, like, it felt, like, very directionless. And so I kind of, like, let Paul Bearer be the thing that guided my my direction. Because it was, like, also, like, wildly, uh, you know, impossible to speculate about, like, what would happen. But I at least, like, had this thing that I could, like, pour all of my energy into. So... Yeah, look, it's, I understand exactly where you're coming from but because I, it certainly didn't happen at that moment when my father passed away, but a few years afterwards, I got I finally went back to university and, and got a degree and, and, and I don't know how else to say it, mate, but got serious. That's the only way I can say it. And when I say got serious about what I'm doing here and now, because like you, with you playing music, I think I'm sort of spread in, in performance, but in covers and stuff, that's, that's just something I do. Mm-hmm. But it informs what I do here, which is the journalism pursuit, the music journalism pursuit. Now, writing the book, the, the book I'm writing a book at the moment, writing a book about a, a Krishna devotee and also uh, what I'm doing here, the podcast as well. And 
so many of the wonderful interview subjects such as yourself that I've interviewed over the years I'll be sending the book to and and I um and, and as I say man I, I think I just got serious before that I was I was working my ass off in a telecommunications company as an account executive and just dealing with fucking morons and it takes so much of your soul and spirit to do that yeah. if that's not what you're put here to do you know and and I think that and if there's any gift from it all and I hope you don't mind me framing it that way without respective parents passing away is that it allows us to focus extraordinarily focused too which i'm not sure that i would have done if my dad was still around yeah yeah i mean i i have thought a lot about this like the even like in my like decade of running away i mean it's obviously been like an ever-present like thorn in my side kind of where i'm just like I like still to this day, like have a hard time dealing with this, but I'm also like, I would be in a completely different circumstance if none of that had happened. Mm-hmm. Like that was like the, the biggest driving force of starting this band at all was that my mom was terminally ill and I needed an outlet to, mm. to like communicate that musically and like for for many years like in a very like veiled sense in the lyrics but yeah this is just like the it's taken me this long to really like understand like how deeply it has affected me and to also like understand the like deeper complexity of like how much i don't understand do do you have a do you have a lot of dreams really vivid dreams I have had a lot of vivid dreams over the years. Uh, and honestly, like uh, that's been a big inspiration for a lot of the like imagery in the lyrics, but not on forgotten days. It's the first okay. Paul bearer record where the, there's no like, dream imagery in any of the lyrics that I wrote. It was like all like more, more concrete. Yeah. yeah. I just yeah, have I... to let you know, I, unfortunately my phone is like, I think only on like 7%, 7%. or something. So it, <laughs> yeah, me. Well, just be, I'll, I'll wrap things up. But before I do, look, I do host a podcast series, as I might have alluded to, mate. If you're comfortable, I know we've spoken about some pretty personal stuff, man, but if you're comfortable, I'll, I'll release it as a, I'll release everything that we've spoken about on the podcast. Because I think, man, sure. I think if I've learned anything in this, this four year journey that I've been on by doing this, mate, is that heavy metal fans, mate, we're a sensitive bunch you know, contrary to the perception out there by the mainstream. And we do connect with musicians on a much deeper level than just listening to the music, I think. So I think it's really important that people hear that um, it's, I don't want to use a word like inspired, you know, it's not appropriate to use a word like that, but but these experiences that we've both had with losing a parent, you know, they the, the consequences of some of that have manifested in our art, if you like. And I think yeah, it's really, absolutely. really important for people to hear that, you know, and because uh, a lot of, a lot of, again, men are not making any broader assumptions about anybody that, listening in their life circumstances, mate, but life is tough, man. I mean, you guys have got a bloody election going up there in three, three weeks time. And we know for a fact, there's going to be a lot of social upheaval either way with that one there. And a lot of my listenership is in your part of the world, man, and you know, and I think, you know, we're witnessing uh, very interesting times in the good old United States, which I think is a beautiful country, a great country. I've been there many times, but 
you know, it's um, not the country that it was when I was last there in 2012, I don't think. And um, Yeah, and, I don't and even I think... think it's the country that it was like a year ago right now. It's, oh. there's, there's never been a time, I, I don't think there's, at least in the entire time that I've been alive, I don't think there's ever been like a higher amount of social anxiety. It's just like, this polarity, there's... mate, that's happening, like where, where people, they're sort of going... I've got to be honest, man, it seems to be more on the left. They're going so far left when centre-left is okay. You can still express a lot of these leftist views through the centre-left, but they're going so far left at the moment. I do get a bit concerned about the consequence for average families over there that are just trying to earn a living and they work in, you know, mum works in Walmart and dad works at a mortgage company or something, you know, this sort of thing. And I'm not, I'm not trying to pitch a, a political point here whatsoever, but I think as soon as average people who are driving their Pontiac Aztec around can't, um, you know, or Chevrolet Lumina or whatever it might be around feel unsafe, man. I think society has got very serious questions to ask themselves. And I think yeah. certainly the images that we're seeing here now is a bit of that. Yeah, I, I definitely think that, uh, I mean, having, I mean, living in New York, I've seen a lot of the the thing that's, or things that are being portrayed in a like, in a very extreme way in the media, um, especially like earlier this year with a lot of the protests, like hmm. it, it's been spun into something a little less beautiful than I think that it is. But also, you know, I can only speak to what I've seen in my hmm. circumstance. I do agree that I think that like the left in general has become like like very splintered and there needs to be more a little more unification a little less finger pointing and like piety about like who sure. who can like be the the like you know the it's gonna sound like very cliched but like who can be like the most politically correct i guess yeah that's it and i think um, there's that i just i don't know i i would i i am definitely a very left-leaning person but i also would i hope that in the future that there would be less of this sort of like balkanizing of mm -hmm. ideals in the left because that's definitely not fucking happening on the other side of the aisle <laughs> like yeah, there needs to really be a little point. more of a, like a needs to be a more of like let's tackle these issues like one by one and like instead of like we're just going to follow this thing and this, you know, it's just kind of these like sort of like pie in the sky things that like each group is just like trying to take care of mm -hmm. on their own without as much like consequence towards other stuff. I don't know. I, I'm not a, I'm not necessarily like the world's like most adept political philosopher. So, that's just well, my You're my entitled stance. to your opinion, mate. <laughs> Joseph, you're entitled to your opinion uh, as much as anybody else there in the United States. Uh, you're an extraordinary musician. At least you're trying, mate. Fucking hell, man. At least you're, you're creating this beautiful music for people that will help them through these times. I've said this many times on the podcast when I've, when I've had conversations with people such as yourself. When I say thank you for doing what you're doing, because it is very important what you're doing. You know, we've got Daz and the guys in Benediction in the UK back. You know, I mean, we're going through a time where I think either way, whatever is going on out there in the public, in our own 
you know, to center ourselves, okay, for people like myself, you know, music is the elixir, it's the tonic, and the yeah. fact that, that you give a shit and you're still producing music and you're not going to give up doing that, man, that's, ex- I can't make that point, I can't labor that point enough, okay, that is extremely important that you keep doing what you're doing, you know, and that you, you don't give up doing what you're doing because I think people now more than ever, over the net, I do, because I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon, mate, this polarization that's occurring. Over the next ten years or so, mate, people will just they'll lean into Paul Bearer and the lyrics that you're writing for the reasons that you've expressed that you've written them especially, and they'll gain strength from them, mate. So thanks so much for doing what you've done, and you know, good luck with everything. And uh, mate, I just hope to see you guys down here sometime in the not distant future, the near future. Let's say that. Let's be optimistic. <laughs> I yeah, I I really hope so. I really really hope so. All right, brother. Thanks so much for the conversation. Good luck with everything. Yeah. Again. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Okay, catch ya. You've been listening to the Scars and Guitars podcast series that syndicates for the A-List Online, and my name is Andrew Mackay-Smith. The interview subject then, his name is Roland D. Howard from the outfit Paul Bearer. Thanks so much for listening.